I'm going to pray again here as we get started in the Scriptures. Uh, Father, the, the words of that song are uh, spot on, uh, that worship is about seeing Your Son. And Lord, being in the Word is about seeing Your Son. And Your work in us is to transform us, taking on His image, His character, His life. And, and I ask that from our time this morning in Your Word, that's, that's what would be going on, Lord, that we'd see more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were describing your home life, uh, what, what kind of words would come to mind? Uh, the relationship you have with the people that you spend the most time with, the people that you might be tempted to take for granted, what would those relationships look like? Uh, interaction between husbands and wives or children and parents, if you're single, how about interactions with either your housemates or your closest friends? If you say, what do my relationships with those people I'm not worried about impressing look like? What do those look like? You know, is that, is that joyful? Is there peace? Or is there acrimony? You know, is there tension? What's typical of those? What's typical of the place sort of we call home emotionally through most of the waking hours perhaps of our days or our lives? What does that look like? I raise that question because as we talk about applying some of the things we've already looked at in the epistle to the Colossians, it's interesting that when Paul goes to a point of application, when he says we've put off our old sinful self, you know, it's just consumed with it's all about me, we've put that off, and we've put on Christ, it's interesting that when he goes to application and I put on Christ's character, he goes to our home life as the first point of application. He doesn't sort of reach to the stars. He doesn't reach for the airy heights of somehow I'm going to be taken up in some celestial experience. When he starts applying, putting off the old and putting on the new, he goes right to our family life to the relationships we have with folks that probably more often than not, we're not concerned about impressing, so we're unguarded. And the point would be this. If we don't have significant radical transformation in our family life, in those relationships we're unconcerned about impressing anyone in, then we really don't have transformation. We haven't put off the old. We haven't embraced the new. If we're not a different person at home with our closest friends, with our spouse, our children, then we really don't see radical transformation in our lives at all. Whatever we put on, when we get in bigger groups, and you know, all of us, we struggle with security and am I okay? And so maybe if we get in a bigger group, you know, I, I sort of change my behavior. You know, we might put on a mask. Putting on a mask is not putting on Christ. So when Paul goes to the point of application on putting on Christ, he goes to our home. He goes to those relationships we, we have typically with people we don't care about impressing at all. We're in Colossians 3, verse 18, and we'll read up through chapter 4, verse 1. That's an unfortunate break. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 belongs with everything that precedes, and there's a break at verse 2 instead. So I'm going to read from the ESV, and we'll jump in from there. So he's told us, put off the old, put on the new. And now he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. By the way, all these verses here towards the end have to do with bondservants and masters. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, chapter 4 there, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you remember back in Colossians 2, Paul was addressing heretics, teachers who were teaching falsely in the church. And one of the things they were talking about was having uh, communication from angels. They said, you know, we've been talking to our friends, the angels, and they're giving us this new revelation. Or they, they were aspiring to these esoteric heights to somehow gain this spiritual, emotionally compelling experience. That was the, the heretic group in Colossae. And in total contrast to what those guys were at, that sounded spiritual. You know, I'm a Christian, I belong to the Lord universe, and so my experience, it's going to be lofty and high and angelic and all these good things. But when Paul goes to apply this, he's talking about taking out the trash. And he's talking about obeying our parents. It is interesting that it is so not what we would otherwise think. So, You remember he said in chapter 3, set your mind on things above. So we might be tempted to go back to chapter 2 and say, okay, that's about angels and that's about wisdom you know, that I get by going to heaven. And Paul says, well, no. This this is about how you live and and walk out your life right in the confines of your own home. You know, we are not more spiritually outside our homes than we are in our homes. So Paul's application... It's not high, it doesn't sound impressive. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. What kind of people are we at home? 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, when Paul talks about the kind of men who are fit and called to lead in local churches, one of the key qualifiers is that they be good managers of their own families. In fact, in Timothy, in that first letter from Paul to Timothy, He says, if they don't know how to manage their own household well, how can they manage God's church? In other words, the proving ground for a man before he could take on leadership responsibility in the church was his home life. His family and the state of his family and the health of his family and his relationships there qualified or disqualified him to serve in a larger sphere. It was his home life that was the basis of everything that followed. In Luke 16.10, Jesus says, the one who is faithful in a little thing, like what kind of people we are at home, will be faithful with much more. But if I'm not faithful in a little thing, Jesus says, I won't be faithful with more. So as we're thinking about transformed living, putting off the old, 
putting on the new, leaving behind old cultural ways of seeing and doing, and embracing Christ's way of seeing and doing, that's supposed to affect us right right where we live. It might look unimpressive to others, but if we're not transformed within the walls of our home, we really aren't transformed at all. I think you've got a couple of these quotes on your study sheet. William Lyon Phelps said this, the final test of a gentleman is his respect for those who can be of no possible service to him. The gentleman is concerned for others because of who he is, not because of their standing or lack of standing. You know, what are we like to the people we don't care about impressing that can't serve us, that we don't want or need anything from? There's another quote from my wife's favorite work of fiction, To Kill a Mockingbird. And in there, the character Miss Maudie pays Atticus Finch sort of, in my mind, one of the highest compliments you can, in which she said, Atticus Finch is the same in his house as he is on the public streets. He treats people in his household in the same manner he would someone on the street. He's not trying to impress one group of people more than another. He treats everyone the same because he is the same. That's his nature. That's his character. So, when we get into applying what is putting on Christ looks like, Paul's going to say it starts in our home. It starts with those relationships that we might otherwise take for granted. Before we work through this, let me quickly go through the list of character traits that we looked at last time. That if we put on Christ, what does that look like? And, and briefly too, remember we've said this call is not to follow religious rules. This call is to live true to who we already are in Christ. We don't gain any favor with God by living this way. We simply are living out who we are as new creations in Christ. So it's not religion that we're following here. It's the life of Christ taking on more and more of the ground in our lives. That's what's being expressed here, not rules keeping. So Paul says when we put on Christ, this is some of the key character traits that are true of that. So he says compassionate hearts. And you remember we said bowels of compassion or mercy. We feel for people. Uh, kindness, this moral goodness expressed towards others. Humility, willingness to take the low spot to serve others. Meekness, remember we don't grab things for ourselves. We don't force ourselves to the front of the line. Uh, patience, which also meant that we suffer long. We put up with things for a long time. That goes right along with the next one, which was bearing with one another. You know, we put up with each other. Bad habits are things that don't change in someone else's life. We put up with that. Forgiving each other. That's putting on Christ. Oftentimes people will say, I can't forgive. And then we say, that's okay. Christ in you can forgive. I can't forgive, Lord. Okay, but Christ in me can forgive. Putting on love like the icing on a cake, that's supposed to go over everything else. You know, Without love, Paul said, we're nothing. We can't bring anything to the plate if we're not bringing the love of Christ with us. Being thankful, that should go without saying in every sphere of life. And then doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So if we're thinking of our life as an offering to Christ, Dan and Dan talked about that in announcements and our songs, that it's worship. Well, this is what we bring to bear. We offer God, in a sense, Himself in Christ's character worked out in our lives. So, you'll notice when we go to points of application, it's in the home. These are all homebound relationships. That's one thing. But also that these are inferior to superior relationships. Each one Paul goes through here. 
And by inferior and superior, we don't mean someone's moral value. We simply mean the level of authority they have. So it's an inferior in authority compared to an to a greater authority over them. Those are the relationships Paul takes on here. And we'll start with the inferior, with the person in a relationship that's called to be submissive. So we're looking at wife towards husband, children towards parents, and slave towards masters, which I know sounds strange in our ears in 2013. This isn't typical. And we'll, we'll actually address this quite a bit more here as we work through. But what does it look like to put on Christ if I'm in a position in which I'm called to submit to someone else's authority. What does it look like to have put on Christ? What does it look like for wives, children, slaves? We might say today employees would be the closest fit we would have to this. What does that look like? So first, starting with wives. Paul says to wives, they've put on Christ. So what does Jesus in the wife look like in this relationship to the husband? Submit to your husbands. Live under the authority of your husband. Submit means to arrange under, to subordinate, to subject oneself. Now by the way, when we talk about women, this is, these are the dirty words. Submission, you know, uh, support, obedience. These are the dirty words in our culture. I'm well aware of that. And to live as a Christian is to live radical compared to our culture. So you talk about a wife submiss- submitting to her husband... This may sound strange and hard to take on, but this is what Christ in a wife looks like in her relationship towards her husband. So Paul says, when wives put on Christ, they voluntarily choose to submit to their husband's leadership. And let me be very clear on this. In the original language, this is a choice an equal makes to submit to the authority of the other. This is different than children and slaves. The grammar is different. The call is different. This has no difference in quality that my wife is not my inferior in her person. But in our roles, there's more or less authority. And that's all that we're looking at here. Wives are called to voluntarily submit to their husband's leadership. Not less personhood, not less value, but in that role, less authority. And so she's called to voluntarily submit to her husband's leadership. A submissive wife, by the way, sometimes uh, 1950s era uh, pictures or images of what husband and wife roles look like might mean that there's never any disagreement, that the wife always says, yes, dear, no, dear, you know, whatever. That's, that's not what we're talking about. For sure, in the role of a husband, you're, you have the authority and you have to make decisions and calls. But the wife's role in submitting to her husband's authority does not mean she's not giving her two cents. And I mean in an appropriate spirit. That she's not saying, honey, have you thought about A, B, and C? Or can we pray about this together? So this isn't the doormat. When you say that women are called to submit, there's often this sense of, I become less of a person, I'm a doormat. That has nothing to do with it. So it's equals in which one chooses to voluntarily submit to the authority and the leadership of the other. Now there's lots of challenges in this. You know, both culturally and for any one of us personally, this really does take a conscious effort of the will for women to say, I'm going to choose to support my husband. I'm going to choose to follow his lead. Or if there's a disagreement and the husband makes a 
decision that the wife doesn't really get excited about, that I'm going to support his authority anyway, that I'm going to submit in this way. That's the call to wives to submit to their husband's leadership, to voluntarily choose to support his authority. You see the same thing in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. So I just challenge this on this one especially. There's just lots of uh, talk or we think that we've been liberated. And you guys know our culture is heading towards kind of, kind of an amelioration of any of the distinctives between sexes or roles or, or God's call. And this has nothing to do with what God's about. God makes us distinct. He gives us distinct roles because that all represents His goodwill. There's not a downside to this. This is all upside. This is all meant to be a blessing and nothing less than that. So wives are called to voluntarily submit to their husband's leadership and authority. Children, it says in verse 20, obey your parents. The thought here is that I listen to what my parents say and I do it. And in this command, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> Sorry guys, <clears throat> my allergies are killing me. My medications are more or less helpful this morning. Uh, this is not voluntary submission. This is an imperative to children that you must listen to your parents and you must obey. You're not equals. Parents and children are not equals. Now when they grow up, they are. We're past parenting and telling kids what to do. You know, Then we, Lord willing, we're friends. But when we're raising our children, when we're training them up, the word here is that you listen, you must listen, and you must obey. This isn't voluntary on children's part. This is you must do this. You must listen and obey your parents. Um, When children put on Christ, they choose to obey their parents' commands. They choose to listen and then follow through. You see this in Luke 2.51. Remember the story where Jesus gets left behind in Jerusalem, you know, the family assumes he's with everybody else headed home and he's not. And they come back and they find him and Mary sort of reproves him, you know, man, where were you? We were worried. You know, he says, well, I had to be in my dad's house. But when he goes back, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He took on the role of a child under his parents. That's exactly what Jesus did. And in each one of these relationships, it's important to say this. It's Jesus in us as the submissive party. It's Christ in us as the one in an authority position. It's never that it's just me. I've put on Christ. So it's Christ in me as an authority. It's Christ in me as the submissive party. Thank you. Now, just as is true that sometimes husbands may start to make decisions without all the information, sometimes that's true about children as well. Uh, Some of you have been through parenting classes in which there's a process called an appeal. May I appeal this decision, mom or dad? Basically, the child is offering additional information that mom or dad may not have. There's nothing disrespectful about that. No one's a doormat here. There's an expectation that children will hear and obey, but this is in a respectfully, a mutually respectful relationship. So children who have put on Christ towards their parents, the one in greater authority, they listen to what their parents say and they obey. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the bond servants just 
because a couple reasons. I want to talk about what was true of slaves and bondservants in that day just so we have context for what Paul is saying. And then also just so that it's a little easier to make some applications as well. Bondservants, verse 22, obey in everything. Just like children. There's not a thought that they're equals. On the ladder of authority, they're not equals. The, the bond slave is like a child. He's beneath the authority of the slave owner or slave master. And if you notice in your text, Paul spends more time on this than any other here. Any other relationship, this is it. Two to three times more. The Greek for bond servant here is doulos. And this term can mean, and is often translated a variety of ways, slave or servant. Um, indentured servant would be another way we might translate this. But typically it is the language of a slave. Uh, John MacArthur had written a book, I think in bold letters, called Slave. And it was to point out the, the stark, dramatic language which the Bible talks about Christians using this term. So Paul doesn't just use it here, but it's used, as we'll see in a minute, more broadly of Christians in general. In Paul's day, slavery was part of the normal fabric of life. This was a given. This wasn't a shock or surprise. Slavery was part and parcel of living life in that day and in that place. In Rome and in Italy generally, about one in every three people were slaves. In the Roman world in that era, about generally outside of Rome and Italy, about one in every ten people were slaves. This was very, very common. This had nothing to do, by the way, with what country you hailed from, with what color your skin was. You could be a slave, you could find yourself a slave from no matter what your skin color was, what country you hailed from, where you were born or how good or how difficult life had been before. Anyone from any place could be found in a position of slavery. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that in the Law of Moses, in the Old Testament covenant God had with Israel, God made allowance and provision for slavery. If you look at Exodus 21, and I don't know if any of these are on your sheet or not. Exodus 21, Leviticus 22, 44-46, Leviticus 25, 6-46, and Deuteronomy 15, 12-18 all talk about slavery in the context of God's covenant people. Uh, talks about being able to enslave foreigners. Talked about the limitations on slavery related to fellow Hebrews or Jews. That, for instance, one Hebrew could not own as a slave another Hebrew indefinitely. There'd be an end to that servitude. Uh, wives, <clears throat> excuse me, women back in that day, and this is when women were seen more as property. Women could be sold by fathers or by families. Typically, this is within Israel as Jews, usually as concubines, that usually ended up as being a wife. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus talked about the relationship of slaves and masters repeatedly in His stories calling us to faithfulness. It was so common that it was easy to use that as an illustration. Uh, some in the early church were slaves, and some in the early church were slaveholders. You know, if you read the epistle to Philemon, Philemon owned a slave, Onesimus, and that's why the letter was written. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses in a big church in a big city in Corinth, Paul addresses both those who were slaves and those who were free. In Ephesians 6, you see a parallel passage to 
the passage we're in here addressing both slaves and slave owners. Now it's interesting, we tend to have knee-jerk reactions to the language of slavery just because of history in the United States. And so some of this language is not only odd, but we scratch our head as to why Paul didn't go further than he did. So, for instance, in his letter to Philemon, Paul asks Philemon to free his slave Onesimus. Onesimus has become a Christian and he's become Paul's helper. And Paul says to Philemon, would you free this brother in Christ? Would you receive him back not now as a slave, but as a fellow brother in Christ? So there in Philemon, there's an appeal to free a slave. But when you get into Colossians and Ephesians, you see no such language. Now one of the things that I take away from this, a couple things, perhaps tangents to each other, the call to submit is really profound. And I think we have a knee-jerk reaction to say no thank you. If I find myself in a submissive role, no thank you. And the emphasis on slaves obeying sort of helps drive home the point that in the early church when Paul could have said, I command you to free your slaves, he didn't. And we're not going to try and develop all the theology or the what-ifs or permutations on why something was or was not included in the New Testament related to slavery. But this does drive home the point that submission is a normal part of life for Christians. Whatever that role is for us to submit is not some above the call for us. It's not something high and elevated. This should be a normal part of life. Submission in whatever role that occurs. You know, the means by which people became slaves back in the day, you could be taken captive in war. That was very common. Uh, you could be born into slavery. If your parent was a slave and you were born into that slave owner household, you were a slave from birth. Uh, your family might sell you into slavery. This sounds really harsh and really foreign to our ears, but back in these days, remember, oftentimes simply having a place to live and food was a challenge. And sometimes selling a family member was, in fact, a way for providing for their future as well as your own family. I think we need to be careful, by the way, of the prejudices we read into these texts. Uh, the condition of slaves varied widely too. <clears throat> if you were a slave to the Roman government and you worked in a mine for salt or for ore, life was hard and it was short. You know, if you think of the movie Ben-Hur and you're enslaved and you row on a Roman galley, life was short and it was hard, terrible conditions. So you go from that on one hand, but on the flip side, if you were a slave in a wealthy or well-placed family in the Roman world, your life, you could have social standing and importance greater than people who were free because of the family you were attached to. So many slaves in antiquity enjoyed very, very high levels of standing in society and had great wealth. And often, this isn't part of what Paul's talking about, oftentimes what would happen, a slave raised in a house was often adopted as a family member. We need to understand that this wasn't, slavery in this time and place was not like slavery typically in the early United States. It occupied a much wider sphere in this culture in this time. And at the end of the day, put this in context, because Paul's making application to our life at home, Paul's addressing slaves who are seen as extended family members. These are the people that were interacting with their masters and masters with slaves all the time. 
that was very common in this slave to owner relationship. It was that each person saw themselves as part of the extended household. I don't want to paint slavery, by the way, here in rose-colored glasses on one hand, but nor do I think it's helpful to view it with a set of prejudicial lenses that doesn't take into account the time and the world that Paul was in and wrote in. Um, so into this relationship, Paul tells those who are slaves, we say bond servants, but it's slaves, he says to obey, and he qualifies it three times here. It was to be sincere, done in reverence for Christ Himself. That's at verse 22. The service of slaves was to be from the heart. And I love the, the motivation Paul includes here. Verse 23. Serve your master from the heart, ultimately seeing God Himself as your master, as your ultimate master, the one in ultimate authority over you. And trust God to give you a full future reward. When he talks here in the language of an inheritance, Paul is saying to those who don't have an inheritance as a slave on earth, you are sons and daughters of God and you have a full-blown inheritance that you're going to walk into, if not in this life, in the next. So when you serve, do so with the understanding that you are God, son or daughter, and you receive the full-blown inheritance every other son and daughter of God has in Christ. In fact, in three, chapter 3, verse 4, Paul said, you'll be revealed with Christ in glory. That was true of slaves as well. Those who occupied the status of slaves here on earth give up nothing related to future glory when we're transformed into Christ's own image. Now, if we talk about slavery just in the historic context, we say, well, there's really no application. But there's a couple that we can make. These aren't primary applications because we don't have this relationship. These are secondary. But here's the first. Christians are called to see ourselves as slaves. And that is radical. And that's not the way we think. Christians throughout the New Testament are called to see themselves. We are called to see ourselves. I am called to see myself as a slave of Christ. And this is over and over and over again. If we miss this, we're not reading our Bibles carefully or well. For instance, the apostles call themselves Christ's slave. Paul does it three times, Peter does, Jude does, and John does. Remember, in the early church, these guys are the ultimate authority. The apostles. And they say we are no more than slaves of Christ. We are Christ's servants. Uh, when you look at local leadership in the church, the term deacon comes from the term diakonos, which just means a servant. The leaders in the local church are called to be servants. Jesus repeatedly states in the Gospel that those who are first and greatest in the Kingdom of God are the servants of all. They're the slave in the lowest place. And of course, that's what Jesus showed us in the Incarnation. Right? He humbled Himself. He stepped down to our humanity. And then He stepped down lower to a servant. And He stepped down as low as He could get you know, in His crucifixion like a criminal there on the cross. In John 13... <clears throat> excuse me. Remember, Jesus wants to make a point to His disciples. And it is comedic when you read through the Gospels. And the disciples are always wondering, who's the most important? 
And they're wondering this on Jesus last night with them. And so you remember in John's Gospel, John takes a great amount of time to show us Jesus takes a towel and a basin of water and He goes around the group and He washes the feet of everyone there. Now they know what this means. It was the lowest slave in the house who washed people's feet. So Jesus says, I am the greatest, but I'm coming in now as the lowest of all and I'm washing your feet. I'm taking the lowest place because I'm showing you what to do. These are guys are going to carry on the church. These are going to be the witnesses to Christ after His resurrection. These are the most highest placed guys, if you will, in the church. And He says, guys, I'm calling you to model what I've done is to take the lowest place voluntarily in order to serve others. We're not there yet, but leadership and authority as a Christian is always meant as a means of serving others. It's not a way for us to feel better about ourselves. Authority and leadership is always about serving other people's needs and interests. So, if we're a Christian and we think serving others is beneath us, then we're saying de facto that we are greater than our Lord and Savior. If I can't make myself the servant of all, I'm saying I'm more important than Jesus. I don't think any of us are. So we're to follow Jesus' lead there. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21-23 through 23. Paul says to those who are human slaves, he says, you may be enslaved in your humanity here, but in Christ spiritually, you're free. You're free. And he says also, flips that over and says, and by the way, (coughs) sorry, by the way, if you're a free person, you need to understand that you're actually Christ's slave. You know, we hammer home routinely that in Christ we've been lifted up and we've made sons and daughters of God. And that's true. But there's this whole other side to life. There's this whole other side of looking at it in which we're called to be Christ's slave. We don't want to forget that. Paul talks in the language of slavery when you read through 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 when Paul says you've been bought with a price, that's a slave. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's a slave. I've been bought like a slave in the market. I belong to Christ. I owe Him humble service. All Christians are called to that. Let me make another secondary application. It has to do with employees and employers. Slavery was uh, unconditional in the sense of this wasn't an agreement between two parties. Employment is an agreement between two parties, isn't it? I agree to provide goods or services or time, and someone else agrees to pay for them. That's an agreement. Either one of us can opt out unless we have a contract. But we've agreed to a contract even there. So this isn't the same. But when we go to apply that and say, what might this look like for us today? Employees to employers. That is about the closest application we can make. So if I'm an employee, I should have a sense of deference towards my employer that I'm going to give him the best service or her the best service or them the best service, heartfelt, a not cutting corner, showing up on time, you know, doing the full thing, just as the language of slaves was here, that's what I aim to do as an employee to someone else. Whether they're watching or not, I'm going to be faithful in my service of employment. I'm going to give it the very best knowing that ultimately Christ is the one I'm serving. Would your employer or your fellow employees say that you reflect the submissive service Paul talks about here? 
Let me add to here, just for the sake of time, I'm going to cut a few things down. Uh, the call to obedience here, on one hand we're saying it's unconditional. If you're a child or you're a slave, it's unconditional. That has an exception. We've talked about this this year. If someone in authority over me tells me <clears throat> that I must do what Christ forbids or forbids me to do what Christ requires, then I must disobey. Now, I'd have to be prayerful about that. Am I sure that's the case? And for most of us, this will probably never occur. But this isn't ultimately unconditional. No one but God ultimately owns my conscience. I ultimately answer to Him. And that's in place here, in view here, in all these relationships. But that's always the caveat. No one else can command me to disobey God. I should not go there. We are no less important in God's eyes for having willingly and joyfully taken on the submissive role than Jesus was in coming down from heaven to earth for our sake. Christ in us is the superior or the authority. I'm going to run through this a little bit more quickly. <clears throat> husbands, <clears throat> husbands occupy the role of greater authority in a marriage. And so Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Like he says there too, don't be harsh. Don't abuse your authority. And love your wife has this sense of tenderness, of tender, thoughtful care towards your wife. We had a group of couples in our house last night that we had the privilege of being connected with in weddings. And it was so fun to hear uh, how it's been since. You know, what are happy surprises? What were unexpected challenges? Uh, but marriage um, you know, confronts us with our own sinfulness. And for husbands... There's a huge temptation not to love my wife by serving her. And one of the things we try and communicate in premarital and at weddings generally is that my wife should be a better person because she married me. And that my role as a husband is to help my wife become the person in Christ God means her to be. If I'm not doing that, I am not loving my wife in the sense I'm called to here. So, if I'm the husband, I'm in the role of authority, my authority is there to undergird my wife's spiritual life and her emotional well-being. And that requires thoughtfulness. It's easy as guys because we tend to get uh, tunnel vision. I've got work to do. I've got these tasks to take care of. And this, is, this cuts across the grain for most of us. If we're not intentional about this, if we're not prayerful about it, if we don't make ourselves reminders, hold ourselves accountable to others, this is something we just tend not to do. But husbands put on Christ in that relationship when they willingly look for the ways to serve their wives so that their wives are not only encouraged and growing spiritually, but are becoming the person in Christ God means them to be. Ephesians 5 says the same thing. Uh, fathers, don't provoke your children. This is verse 21. Don't stir them up in a way that unnecessarily frustrates them. Uh, authority and authoritarianism was more common when this was written than it is today. I don't think most parents today are authoritarians. I don't think we do this very much today. I, I think the, the tendency is opposite. We want to make sure that in our relationship with our children, we're not frustrating them by requiring more than they can do or sometimes just by not encouraging them. You know, words of encouragement. You're doing a great job. You know, thank you for taking out the trash or whatever. 
But the flip side, I think, more common for most of us is the temptation that we're not engaging our children enough. We're not requiring enough of our children. Our goal is not to produce nice people. Our goal is not, as Christian parents, is not to produce great athletes. Our goal as Christian parents is to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And so I think typically for most of us as Christian parents, we don't tend to frustrate our children by requiring too much. I tend to think we require too little, and sometimes it's misplaced. The goal is that they become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal. And then last he says at chapter 4, verse 1, uh, treat your bond servants justly and fair. And I love it. He says, remember that ultimately you answer to Christ for the way you've treated your servants, your slaves. And he says they're justly. That's the same word. Uh, it's righteous. You know, I have Christ's righteousness. I'm righteous before God. Well, that's what slave owners were supposed to display towards slaves. Righteousness in the way they treated them. And equity. Equality, not, you know, not in a negative, harmful way, uh, making too little of one and too much of another, but there's a sense of equity and right relationship with those under their charge. If you say, as a wife, uh, I can't submit to my husband because, or if you say as a husband, I can't love my wife because, or if you say as a child, you know, or as an employee, I can't respect and follow the lead of my employer or my parents because you know, there might be some valid reasons there that you need, need to be prayerful about. But more often than not, what we want to say is, Lord, I can't do this. Uh, Christ in me can. Jesus in me is the servant of all. Jesus in me is the best of authorities. So if I'm putting on Christ, whichever role I, I see myself in, and these vary. You know, a wife may be submissive to a husband, but she's the authority over those children. We'll usually all find ourselves not just in one role, but either role on this level of authority. But to put on Christ, it's the same thing in either direction. Christ in me is a loving, serving authority. Christ in me is a loving, devoted, obedient servant. It's Christ in either direction. So that's the thing we don't want to lose sight of. For us to take the place of humility and submission is to put on Christ. And for us to, to accept, to be conferred with an authority and use that in loving service of others, that is to take on Christ in that role as well. Father, we don't do either of these well. We tend to abuse authority. We tend to dis those who are over us. Lord Jesus, uh, You mean to change us from the inside out, and that means in our family relationships, and then out from there with our closest friends that we take for granted, and out from there. Would You help us, Lord, to more consistently put on Christ in our relationships and to joyfully and willingly submit and serve and obey and joyfully and willingly serve the best interests of those we have charge over, like our Lord and Savior Jesus did. Amen.